I'm Cameron Tusi with IP Law Leaders, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 102 of the IP Fridays podcast. I'm your co-host, Ken Suzanne. Today's guest is Cameron H. Tusi, the managing partner of IP Law Leaders, PLLC. Cameron is a nationally renowned intellectual property attorney, and we will be discussing the topic of patent trolls. Rolf and I hope you have been enjoying the revised posting schedule of IP Fridays. You may have noticed that we modified the podcast posting schedule to a monthly format, always on the last Friday of every month. Make sure to add the IP Fridays podcast to your podcast feeds on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher.com. There's more content coming your way throughout this year. Before we get to today's interview, on to an important ruling from the United States Supreme Court concerning trademark licensing and bankruptcy proceedings. What happens to a trademark license when the licensor files for bankruptcy? Recently, the United States Supreme Court addressed this controversial legal issue in an important ruling you need to know. In an 8-to-1 decision, the United States Supreme Court put an end to the ongoing split between the First and Seventh Circuits. In Mission Product Holdings, Inc. v. Technology. The question before the court was whether rejection of a trademark licensing agreement during bankruptcy rescinded a licensee's rights to the mark. The court ruled that contracts rejected by trademark licensors in bankruptcy do not terminate or rescind the licensee's rights to the mark. The court noted the rejection of the licensee's contract and trademark license is a breach of contract such that technology's rejection of its contract to license trademarks to Mission Product Holdings does not prohibit their ability to continue using technology's trademark. This case concerns technology, a cooling fabric company that manufactured athletic sportswear that licenses its cool core trademark rights to licensee Mission Product Holdings. Technology subsequently filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2015, a year before the contract was to end with Mission Product. Technology attempted to use Chapter 11 as a shield to reject the contract and terminate Mission Product's trademark rights under the license. Prior to U.S. Supreme Court review, the bankruptcy court held that termination of the trademark license agreement constituted a rescission of Mission Product's right to use the technology trademark. The bankruptcy appellate panel court reversed, relying on 11 U.S.C. Section 365G of the Bankruptcy Code. The court held technology's rejection of the agreement constituted a breach of contract such that the, quote, terminate rights of the licensee would survive the licensor's breach under applicable non-bankruptcy law, close quote. What does this mean for trademark licensees? 
the United States Supreme Court has leveled the negotiating options between trademark licensors and licensees. Trademark licensees have the option to assert damage claims due to rejections of the license or, alternatively, to continue to use the trademark until the end of the license term. Now, on to the interview with Cameron Tusi. Our guest today on IP Fridays is Cameron Tusi. Cameron is managing partner of IP Law Leaders PLLC. Cameron is a nationally renowned attorney in intellectual property, IP-related business, and complex litigation matters, offering clients some 28 years of legal and technological industry experience. Having represented hundreds of Fortune 100s, multinational startup and growth-oriented companies, venture firms, and hedge funds, Cameron regularly advises industry leaders and disruptors alike in their bet-the-company legal matters. Over his extensive career, Cameron has held partner and senior counsel positions with leading national general practice firms. He was previously director of intellectual property for the telecommunications business of Samsung Electronics. In this capacity, he traveled to Europe and Asia on multiple occasions, where he negotiated licenses with the world's leading telecommunications firms and managed numerous related litigations. He co-founded and managed corporate strategy and legal affairs for Bang Holdings. He helped launch new marketing and sponsorship technologies, growing the company from seed financing to multi-million dollar revenues in less than two years. He also launched Bang's offshore technology affiliate in Kochi, India. Cameron has also served as a patent examiner for the United States Patent and Trademark Office, where he determined patentability for applications submitted to data processing control systems and digital data error correction for computer systems. Welcome, Cameron, to IP Fridays. Hi, Ken. Great to be with you. Excellent, Cameron. So, Cameron, I realize that you spend much of your time litigating patents, representing both plaintiffs and defendants around the country, and you've said you've got a unique view about patent trolls because of your background in patent prosecution. Uh, the subject of patent trolls brings on very strong opinions against our arguably lit litigious system. So let's talk first about that. What are patent trolls? Uh, good question. And, uh, and the term patent trolls seems to keep getting morphed, Ken, in the field. I mean, it originally started as uh, my understanding, and you know, don't hold me to it, but um, my understanding is that um, Intel was tired of, uh, of renowned litigator Ray Niro, who was quite one of the best litigators really in our field of patent law. Um, but uh, he was continuously going after them with patents. And um, they had uh, essentially an internal marketing kind of a program to see you know, what to do um, about this. And, um, and I think they even threw around the term patent terrorists, and they thought that was going, you know, being too strong. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, they came up with uh, patent troll, and uh, that was really initially used to label Ray Niro, and then it it became a little bit bigger to label anyone who was asserting patents but but is not practicing their invention, okay? Which you have a right to do, right? So. Um, 
that's really where it started, but uh, it seems to have morphed into anyone who's asserting a patent anywhere. Um, and that's, that's kind of like what I'd like to talk to you a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I, do, I do want to mention that there is a kind of a strategic <clears throat> advantage or play that's involved here when we're talking about uh, patent trolls, you know, really the right, a more polite term for it is non-practicing entity um, or a patent assertion entity, and there are various kinds of names for it, patent trolls, you know, again, a, uh, it's a derogative term that was, that was created for that purpose. But the, 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 the issue is that, you know, if you were, if a, if a corporation were going to um, assert its patents, okay, Typically, that will be against a competitor, and guess what? The patents that they have will be in their own field, right? So when they assert their patents against a competitor, um, that competitor will have typically its own patents, and then so there is a battle, and they have the capability of defending themselves. So then, you know, in uh, litigation parlance, you know, they they um, they'll have a they'll have a you know we'll file our complaint, um, and then they'll they'll file theirs as well, cross complaint. So. Um, that's essentially how how it would work, Ken. But um, if if you think about it, if your technology, if it, you know, think of your the company's core technology. If the patents are directed outside the core technology, you know, that's not really what the company does, and it's asserting it, those patents against um, a another company that's again they're going to be a competitor, or probably doing the same thing. Um, it's going to have much greater strength in that regard because the other side can't really defend itself unless if they go off and they buy their own patents. Okay, so they're going to have to buy their own patents, or they're they're going to have to you know find a way to try to resolve that problem. So really, the less with patents, the 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 lesser your business in in an area, the stronger your patent becomes. And this is also widely recognized by licensing people, you know, patent uh, licensing professionals around the world. When they're asserting their patents, they realize if they're a smaller company with, with lower market share, their fewer patents will have a lot more strength against the, the big guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so is, is that, does that all kind of uh, make sense? Yes, it does. Okay, good. So, so it's really based on that same principle that, that we have the essential patent rule. The patent rule is, um, doesn't have any business, so it's going to have great strength. You know, there's nothing, there's no assertion you can have against it that would have any value, right? Because that damages and patents are, are tied to sales. And if there are no sales, you know, they can just assert the patent without any kind of repercussions. And so the patent rules, one of the things that they don't really um, they they don't like is the fact that you know corporations use the same strategy all the time, and uh, you know so a corporation will use the same strategy. Sometimes will even buy patents um, to be able to to assert them against others. I've actually um, dealt with that, experienced it when I was uh, running licensing um, for uh, Samsung Electronics uh, for the telecom division, and um, and in that kind of a scenario. You know, you've got someone coming after you with, with their own patent portfolio. Um, it's outside of their business. And so they, they realize, and the corporations realize, that um, they have greater strength in that regard. Um, and so you're left having to deal with that. So the patent rules, essentially what I'm trying to say is that um, corporations take advantage of the exactly same principle as the patent rules do. Yes. Right? So, um, and, I, and I know it's become a big, you know, uh, rallying cry for everybody to go against anybody who's asserting patents. Um, but that's essentially kind of how it works. 
Now, Cameron, why do you believe that patent trolls are so problematic, or do you? And is it that they cause actual problems for businesses, or is there marketing behind the message? Right, and I think that it's really both. Um, okay. It's it's problematic that, like, let's say if you were sitting in Apple's shoes and you've got, um, you you basically are dealing with um, companies hitting you up all the time. Um, trying to assert their patents. And uh, it can be a real problem if your market share is quite large. And um, while they are permitted to do it, it's nonetheless, it's going to create, you know, a lot of um, understandable worry and concern and, uh, um, and, and all that. And plus, it becomes a great, you know, transactional cost on a business mm-hmm. when there's constant assertion going on. And so a lot of the bigger companies just got really fed up and tired of it because it just kept happening over and over again. And the larger the market share that a company has, as I, for the reasons I mentioned, the lower its own, um, I mean, the lower the value of its own patents are going to be as against others. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to have much greater strength against the, the big Goliaths than the Goliaths would have against others. So their own patents have, are of, you know, fairly minimal strength because they have just such, you know, dominance in the market. Um, meanwhile, um, they're getting constantly approached by, you know, it could be individuals, it could be um, um, companies that are um, basically aggregating the patents together, which, which is essentially what Patrol is. Um, and it's going to be driving into, you know, all the problems. And, and we have a lot of institutional problems kind of in the patent field itself because um, the, you know, if you think of these, the assertion of the patent, a lot of it, a lot of times it's because of clever patenting, clever patent lawyering, if you will, you know? Sure. So if, if you got, um, you may have a patent that really should not have been allowed, but because you have a very ingenious lawyer or they did a great job of getting some broad claims, and we have a system that's anything but objective, you know? Yeah, sure. And we'd love it for it to be objective. We've tried, but yes. you know, there's a lot of factors that are constantly hurting that. And so for those reasons, it's, um, it's, it, it had become a, um, a big problem, particularly for Silicon Valley, a lot of the larger corporations that, that um, have great business, but they're not particularly interested in patents. And so um, essentially what's, what's happened is it's become very much of a marketing cry because, you know, no one likes patent suits, right? No one likes suits, <laughs> if you say, especially if, especially if you tell somebody that, you know, I'm going to assert a patent um, you know, and I don't even have any business. I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you may not know a lot about patents, but, you know, when we have a basic sense of fairness, and as soon as we hear that someone is just going around suing people, which, you know, has a very negative connotation in any case, but then when you think that, you know, someone's suing people and they don't even run a business, you know, it, it just, in your gut, you're kind of outraged, you know, sure. um, which is, which is why you know it's you know I, I challenge any of your listeners to go uh, Google um, the term patent troll and to find any articles that say the slightest positive thing about it. Yes, you know. So, Cameron, what do you see as the positives of patent trolls, if there are any? Okay, so with with, with that, Ken, I think it's important to kind of look at the entire system. Um, And we have to kind of back up here a little bit. Um, First of all, 
just take a look at, let's say, if you're an individual inventor um, and your, your company didn't go anywhere, but you still have value with respect to your patents, or you could be a startup company that's involved in really some great technologies and you really invented something, but um, the company didn't take off or the competitors you know, were able to just take it and run with it, you're going to have a very difficult time um, you know, in our current system. Um, we don't have any kind of a compulsory license for people. Um, we don't have any type of a, an enforcement mechanism that's tied to the government. The government does nothing. I mean, essentially, they say that you're on your own. Um, and so you have to go and litigate that case yourself um, if you, you're not able to convince the, the company to take a license. If you do make a phone call and try to get a license, the laws have made it um, more difficult because um, we have, we've had a big push toward um, you know, declaratory judgment um, actions in our field and making it relatively easy for someone to go run off you know, if, you, if they feel that they're threatened by a lawsuit to go run and file first. So if, even when you're making a phone call or you're sending a letter, um, a lot of this has happened because of uh, federal circuit case law, um, some good that I agree with, some, some that I don't. Um, but essentially, when just contacting the other side, telling them that you want a license opens you up to a lot. Mm -hmm. and even in the Obama administration, I think there was, um, there was talk of having the FTC um, prohibit communications um, um, you know, going out to someone, to a potential infringer. Well, what that does is it shuts off the communications, and they have no choice but to sue. So if you wanted to make the system worse, you couldn't have done anything worse than, <laughs> than sure. bringing um, the federal government into it at that level. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of misunderstandings, essentially, that, that are causing that system. So basically what, what I do want, want you to know that is essentially it's very difficult whether you're an individual or a startup or somebody who had value and you have patents to be able to enforce it. The government doesn't help you. There's no kind of a forced license. We don't have anything like an industry regime to, to uh, pay people because I can tell you I've represented a lot of with plaintiffs and defendants, most people have, a, have an inherent sense of uh, decency and fairness. And they figure, you know, maybe I'll get 40 grand for my patent. At least I'll, I'll make up whatever I pay for the patent preparation and prosecution. And they don't necessarily want the big multi-million dollar settlement. Mm -hmm. But they don't really have a choice in our system other to, than to go and file a suit. Only problem is a patent suit is extremely expensive. I mean, if you can look at APLA's own, you know, American Intellectual Property Law Association's own numbers, and uh, even a very minor, small-sized patent suit would be in the realm of two or three million dollars for the enforcement. I mean, how is an individual or even a startup or someone who doesn't have the funds in the first place able to go and and collect anything? Particularly yeah. when the the marketplace has become I mean, the, the market in general, I'm talking about just the, the, the patent field, um, and, and the thought of patents has become so negative that as soon as the, you have the idea of enforcing, everyone starts calling you a patent troll. Hmm. So now you're dealing with name-calling, and at the same time, you don't have the dollars to go enforce your rights. So you basically, you know, despite the fact that you, you paid your, your patent counsel years ago and and you, you went through the great, you know, difficult task of not just creating your invention, but also, you know, 
facing up to the challenges and and uh, driving innovation and, and doing the right thing, which is to file the patent in the first place. Um, and then maybe you've, you've gotten lucky because, you know, the federal circuit, uh, there's a lot of case law. It's made it increasingly difficult um, for enforcement because um, we have this claim construction, you know, the Markman hearing um, um, that, that happens during a case and during that Markman hearing, there's going to be interpretation of the claims. And because of a lot of federal circuit case law, you know, essentially any, any word you use in a patent specification can and will be used against you or could be used against you. Now, I can tell you that I represent plaintiffs and defendants. And so, you know, I, I'm an advocate, so I'm not here to, to judge. But I'm just saying, if you look at the entire system, and, you know, there's a stopple created from the way that a specification is drafted. And, and, and then you've got to, you know, somehow mire, you know, get mire through the, the relatively difficult, you know, waters or channels of the, um, of the patent office, you know, because they're, they're, the case law continues to change. Um, and with it, the, there's increasingly more pressure on, on the U.S. Patent Trademark Office to, to uh, you know, to issue valid patents or issue patents in, in a particular way that that's reflective of what the federal circuit or the Supreme Court is thinking at that time. So with all that, you've got to be fairly, I think, even lucky to have a patent that's got value. And here you are after all the, the dollars you spent, all the, however much you toiled, everything that you put in, you've got a patent and you approach a corporation, you see others using it, you can't even have any kind of a meaningful dialogue. Because you know you've been you've been painted, if you try to enforce it as a patent troll, um, which again is just is just messaging, and um, you basically don't have any other options. Again, the government doesn't help you. So what can you do? So long come companies, which I think is basically an economic um, solution, um, which is you know these companies come along and they aggregate patents, and they'll make a deal with you, Ken, and say, well, we'll either they'll give you some some dollars up front, and, and I'm talking about the patent troll here, um, non-practicing entity. They'll either give you some dollars up front and say, okay, just, we'll just buy the patent from you. Or maybe they'll give you some money um, and say, well, we'll split in a certain particular way the profits that, that come from any licensing or litigation of your patent. Or they might just do a deal with you where there's a 50-50 split and there are no upfront funds or fees or anything that they, that they provide you. But in any case, you're given a possibility of being able to collect some revenue from your patent. And what the, the patent troll does, they will go hire attorneys. Sometimes they pay them hourly. Sometimes they hire them on contingency and split some of their profits with them, etc. So essentially, you had a patent that was a dead instrument in the hands of really the creator innovator. And now they've done a deal with this corporation that has the funds to be able to enforce it. Yes. Okay. So it's kind of, they work together and at the end of the day. Some, in exactly. Some ways. Yeah. Exactly. Excellent. So, so, we, so what can happen, so what can happen, Ken, is that you, um, that individual inventor, or it could be a startup, et cetera, whoever the innovator is, they would actually be able to make some money from this transaction. And actually a lot of the patent trolls have made, um, you know, some lucrative dollars for inventors. And I think that if inventors and innovators and, and you know, because we have, a, a, we have an economy that's essentially driven by, you know, entrepreneurship, um, by our advances in technology. And if they knew that, I think they would be 
um, less likely to get involved in all the name calling that goes along with patent trolls, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, no, this is a definitely an interesting subject. I, I note that we're kind of running a little bit out of time, so I want to just touch upon a case that's been in the news a lot and get your feedback on it. Uh, that is the uh, Huawei uh, case. Uh, you've recently said that it's unlikely to win its case against the U.S. government. Could you give us some background and tell us why that is? Yes, I had taken a look at the case, and it's interesting because um, they what Huawei is say, saying is that there was an improper, you know, we have a bill of attainder clause in the U.S. Constitution, right. which essentially means that, you know, um, Congress, parts of uh, the government cannot just go out and punish um, one party or another party. Um, and it stems from, you know, English common law, um, because it used to be that, that kings, you know, once you were sentenced to execution, they could appropriate all your lands and your rights, etc. Mm -hmm. And so we have a, a clause that says there shall be no bills of attainder, which has been expanded constitutionally um, to include, you know, even companies that are, that are situated where they feel that they're being punished by the government. And so... I'm uh, looking at it where economic rights are concerned. There's a lot of leeway um, that's, that's essentially given um, to the U.S. government because, the, you know, the courts will look to see is the real punishment going on. And if there's been an, an essentially a real analysis, objective findings um, before Congress, and then they pass, the, um, they pass a particular law, um, even if it may be costing a lot of dollars, et cetera, for a corporation, that is, um, it's still not going to be considered bill of tainter. The, as you know, in dealing with this kind of precedent, um, they have a very low bar that's required for the, um, for the case to pass constitutional muster. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, um, I felt that it's going to be very um, difficult for them. It's interesting because um, if you're keeping track of the case right now, the parties have, excuse me, the parties have agreed um, that they're dealing just with an issue of law, and so they're just going to be filing a you know motion for summary judgment, which is going to plaintiff's motion is going to be in May, and the uh, defendant's opposition is going to be in July. And have a, by the time they have the reply, and they're from both sides, um, that will happen by September. So essentially, it's it's a case that's going to be ruled on just by the judge, without any facts. Um, you know, uh, at issue because it's going to be a question of the parties have stipulated that it's, it's purely a matter of law. Um, and with that, there's going to be a decision. And I think that, you know, what, what I said in some articles I've written um, is, is even going to be more true. It's going to be very, very difficult um, for Huawei to be able to make its case. Now, Cameron, we're recording this interview in April 2019. What's the current status of the case? And also, what about the status of the Trump administration's accusations of IP theft and unfair trade against China? Right. And, and the status is essentially, as I was, as I was getting at a moment ago, which is that it, it's going to be essentially between the, the two parties. They've already decided that there are going to be no factual questions, and there's going to be a summary judgment motion filed in May. Mm -hmm. um, and following that, um, it's going to be just a decision handed down by the judge, and the, you'll probably expect to see appeals. It will most likely, um, in my view, 
uh, while we most likely failed. The case is very similar to a Kaspersky Labs case um, that uh, was similarly decided uh, last year. And so if you look at the case law, I think it's going to be a very um, tough road for them. Um, as far as the trade sanctions, you know, those those are um, – the discussions are secret, but I think we, there have been about nine rounds of discussions. Um, and the, tr- the uh, Trump administration is apparently, um, with respect to China, they're, they're looking to see if they can have some unilateral um, pushback um, regarding um, trade violations without retaliation by China, which is kind of a difficult thing to ask, but that is apparently what's being reported now. Um, we we are expecting for you know some good results to finally come out of the trade sanctions because there's been a lot of injury to American business. Cameron, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Uh, they're welcome to uh, email me or, um, or check out. Actually, the easiest way might be to look at our website, yes. um, iplawleaders.com, ip and then lawleaders.com, and uh, look me up and contact me. I'd love to hear from them. Excellent. Cameron, thanks so much for contributing today on IP Fridays. Thank you. My pleasure, Ken. Good to be with you. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.